When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Today's episode is sponsored by Hell's Backbone Ranch and Trail. You can check them out at bouldermountaintrails.com. We're super appreciative of them for being willing to sponsor this podcast. And if you or anybody you know is interested in sponsoring, please feel free to send me an email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. With that being said, let's dive right into today's introduction. Today I had the opportunity to visit with Dwight Williams. He's from Teasdale, Utah, and he was born in 1928. Sitting down with him and his son Jeff was really fun for me, and I'm grateful that there are a few good old boys like this left around to visit with. again both of you if you're ready to start all right i usually just like people to introduce themselves so if you could do that and tell us a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood well i'm dwight williams and i was born here in teasdale in 1928 and i've lived here other than my service uh, service in the Air Force. I took a during the Second World War. I was in the Air Force for four years. Other than that, I've always lived right here in Teasdale. And so, in the Air Force, I saw a lot of the world, <laughs> and came back. And Teasdale still looked like a good place to me, so I just stayed right here. I don't blame you. You might say that uh, one of the reasons I stayed here in Teasdale, I I liked the ranching uh, business, and so I just stayed. And my father didn't have a will when he passed away, so the estate was divided up among all of the children. And so I had uh, a reason to stay because I had uh, a pretty good-sized operation uh, at, in, in those days to make a living. And so I just stayed here and ranched, which I liked to do. And we ran. At first, uh, we've always been in the livestock business. At first, we ran... Hereford cattle, which even to this day I prefer, but 
Jeff there thinks it'd be awful if I had an old Hereford County of an Angus. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we, we, I've seen the open range go from kind of wide open to closed, especially the winter ranges. The winter ranges used to be pretty much wide open range. You could take any amount of cattle you wanted to and go to the winter range. In the summer range, we were had what we called permits and we were only allowed so many head of cattle that we were used to running. They used to... And then every <clears throat> spring, we would have to gather our cattle together and put them in a crail and run them through the old wood chute that we'd built to tag them. In those days, they put a tag in their ear every year, a new tag, a metal tag, and so that they knew that they weren't trespassed cattle. And so every year, we had to tag our whole herd of, of cattle, which was a big job uh, by the time we got through tagging everything. And then they went to uh, branding them with a dye on their back, and that only lasted a year or two, and now you don't have to do anything, do you, Jeff? Yeah, for the Forest Service, we tag. You still tag? Well, we, they started a few years ago, yeah. Required to have a Forest Service tag. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, I followed my father and took over the operation, and that's kind of how I settled here in Teasdale. That's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> what? He still lives in the house he was born in. Really? Yes. Teasdale. So. Yeah, that was my grandfather's house and and then when he passed away my father uh, took it over and there's one wall in the old house that's still original the rest of it's all been <laughs> changed <laughs> huh. yeah <clears throat> so what? sorry go ahead no I go ahead what's the earliest memory that you have of helping your dad with the cows well, I guess my earliest memories of my father had a stroke when I was really young, and it affected his left side, and so he, he only had his right arm to to manage things. But the thing that I remember about every day, he had an old horse called Nig, and we'd saddle up. I'd go help him, and we'd saddle up old Nig, and then I'd he'd get in the saddle and. And I'd get up on the granary step, which is higher than that table there, and get up behind him, and away we'd go out to the ranch or wherever we were headed that day to see what was going on. So my earliest memories of riding a horse is behind my father going to the ranch. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you go out all day with him like that? No, we didn't stay out uh, only just an hour or two, and then we'd be back. When <clears throat> when we'd go with the cattle, uh, my older brothers then 
pretty well took over the operation of the cattle. And my brother Orwell and my brother Dial, they were the two oldest, and so they they helped me that well. I'd go with them, and I always remember I used to like to go with Orwell because he'd take a camp along and we'd camp. And my brother Dial, he'd just take what we called a howl-out camp. That's, <laughs> that was a blanket tied behind your saddle and a can of tomatoes in the saddlebag. And boy, we'd go and find some cave to lay, or, lay in for the night and then get up and go again. He didn't like to be bothered with a camp. but So I liked to go with my brother Orwell because he'd always take a camp along. <laughs> yeah. Our at that time our summer and winter range was right close here. We wintered in what we called uh, Tantalus. If you've ever been around the road to Boulder, mm-hmm. and at the lookout you look down in those red ledges down. That's where we always uh, well you might call it spring. We brought them up there in the spring. We fed them most of the time in the winter in, during the coldest months. And uh, about the 1st of May, we could go down in that country. And now we go down by Lake Powell, so it's entirely a different setup altogether than what I was raised with. So you don't have that anymore? Well, he's kind of skipping the... So... My dad and uh, several, like the Glendy you talked to, so his dad were in partnership when they bought out the Baker's, the Baker Ranch. Oh, okay. So that's their winter range. Dad, can you explain? So they bought out the Baker's, and that started where we winter now. Yeah. Okay. Um, Part of that, what was the Baker's winter range? Yeah. The Baker Ranch on Halls Creek. Halls Creek used to be the uh, one of the routes that they would go to cross the Colorado River to go on over into the eastern part of, of the state. And so there was, uh, well, I don't know hardly how to explain it, but um, Smiths, I think, were the uh, first... Uh, Oh, homesteaders that were there, and they they took up about 800 acres of ground and tried to farm it, but they couldn't hold the water, the dams would wash out. So about all it was was a camping cabin to get in and camp. When 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 I came along and knew the place, that's about the only thing that it was used for was a camping place and we would go down and I always try try to get to Hall's Creek and camp and then use that as a headquarters and ride out from Hall's Creek with our cattle. Okay. What was when they bought into the Baker Ranch and what they had? So the way it is now was probably parts of or total three or four allotments. Oh, okay. So it's the the Little Rockies and where Boone and Richard run down on the lake. I don't know what it's called. 
um, where part of the Brinkerhoffs run on Clay Point. But um, when the when they had it before the Taylor Grazing Act and all that came in, it was all just one open. But it had been split up. But we still the winter range we use now is the Little Rockies allotment. Okay. Which after they put it when Lake Powell went in, that's when the Baker Ranch dissolved. And that was when it split up into the different, right? Yeah. Okay. When they formed those different allotments. And I don't know, maybe you remember how that was decided of who got what or where people went, but... Well, when I first went down there, our permits started at the Bitter Creek Divide. Now, the, I don't know whether you know what I'm talking about. The Bitter Creek Divide is out from Sandy Ranch where the water either flows to the Fremont or turns and goes oh, okay. to the Colorado. That's called the Bitter Creek Divide. And so in my earlier days when we bought the ranch, we could start grazing on the Bitter Creek Divide and going all the way down to Halls Creek on the river and all that country down in the southern part there of the of the Henrys. We didn't have any rights upon the Henry Mountain. It was all just rights there and below the Henrys in those uh, mesas there out from Halls Creek. So that was where I kind of got started in the cow business is right there when I bought into the Baker Ranch. Okay. Yeah. Is that um, when they divided it, did they use like natural boundaries or did somebody have to go and like fence all the... Well, the ranch was fenced. Okay. But uh, the allotment weren't fenced. You just... Well, you tried to beat the sheep herd to the feed. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so the sheep herds were, at, well, at one time there was 13 head herds of sheep on top boulder, so, and they all wintered down in that area, so there's even more than that by the time they got the herd down in the lower end of the valley, so there were lots of sheep Lots of sheep in the area at one time. So at one time, Dad, you can correct me, but didn't you say that um, you guys were one of the only cattle operators on yeah. the east side of the boulder? Yeah. Uh, my father... <clears throat> well, I'll have to go back a little. The Hanks family... Uh, came into the area, that was Ephraim Hank's family, and they went around and homesteaded what we called Wildcat on the highway going to Boulder, where the ranger station house is right there. Okay. And that was a, a summer pasture that they had, and they would, everyone in those days, um, milk cows and made cheese, and so... They would drive their pig herd around to there to Wildcat to 
drink the whey and stuff from the cheese making, and then they'd summer there and make cheese and then move back to the to the place there in Grover in the winter. So <clears throat> my father, uh, I don't know how he, what the deal was, but anyway, he ended up with the whole Hank's permits around there, and so that's what we used to run our cattle on for years. Yeah. Did people, so I talked to a guy in Escalant who said that when people started going to war um, and had to leave for the war, that was when the sheep herds, at least in Escalant anyway, that was when they sold out and switched to cattle. Is that what happened over here too? Yeah, the same thing happened here. They couldn't get herders, and so they had no choice. So they just changed the cattle, which they could run three or four hundred head of cattle alone, you know, where sheep herd they couldn't. They had to have herders with them. So that's when mainly everything turned to cattle and the sheep went out. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> but we didn't have the winter rights that we have now down by Lake Ta- Powell, we just had to feed and, and uh, had some rights in the early spring down, like I say, in Pleasant Creek down in the Jurgerson Flats and down in that area on the boulder, east side of the Boulder Mountain. We didn't have much of a ride on the north side of the mountain here. Most of our rights were on the east side, and then when I took over the operation, why my uh, neighbor Emmett Clark, who Clark family held quite a lot of those uh, permits on the north side of the mountain, he wanted to get out of the business, and so he sold them to me, and and we moved around here entirely on the north side, and we don't use the east side anymore. Yeah. So, <clears throat> it's about time for Jeff there to get on his horse and start gathering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you um, first remember going out by yourself and moving cows? Well, I don't know what all my life I've been, but probably about 12 years old when they let me go with them to gather the cattle. Yeah. And then for years and years after uh, my, after the sheepmen kind of quit, why well, we had a fellow by the name of Keith Taylor who changed the cattle. And then it seemed to me like all I got done was leading his horses or extra horses around. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But those were good days. We had one old fellow named Dunk, Dunk Taylor. He used to take his cattle down with us, and he'd come by his camp, and he'd say, get off the horse and come in and have some Finger-licking good mutton. So we'd get <laughs> off and go in and eat mutton with him. <laughs> but we never 
We never pack mutton. There's always beef. Uh, I don't know why, but we just never, never had sheep to kill, so we just ate beef. <laughs> Tastes uh, better anyway. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever work anywhere else or just for your family? Uh, not not as a as a worker or a cowboy. I I've always just been with them other than the Air Force why I've just been on the ranch working for for the family. I think it's interesting to think about the challenges that with ranching that probably Jeff faces now compared to the challenges that you faced. So what were some of the challenges that you faced with ranching? The boundaries. And then I'll go to you. The boundaries? Well, yes, we had what we called open range, or that wasn't forced. But the forest service was uh, closed grazing. So you had to have a, a permit to graze on the forest. Either had, you had to acquire it somewhere. You couldn't just take a herd of cows and go on the forest. You had to have a, it's called a permit, and it called for so many head of cattle for a certain range of time, like from uh, April to October or something like that. And so <clears throat> you had to be regulated, and then every spring they didn't trust you, the Forest Service, so they would, you had to run your cattle through a chute, and they'd put a metal air tag in the tag to show that it was legal. Really? <laughs> yeah. And then they finally got to <clears throat> just painting the cattle on their back, you know, with a dye of some kind, but that didn't last too long. The one that really lasted was the air tagging. We had to tag them all. And that was a lot of work. But the old chutes that you... You didn't have the metal chutes that you have nowadays. You just had no chute. You run them down with a, a stick sticking here and a pole with a... And the pole up here was tied with a rope and, a, and then a... a or what you'll call it, well, as a stick. And the old cow put her head through, you pull down on that and catch her. And <laughs> <laughs> then do the work. We we had the more, mainly all the cattle that was on this north side of the mountain and a big share of them on the east side when I grew up. Then there were, there were the muley, you know, Hereford, or the one with the horns, but we always run the ones with the horns and then have to dehorn every, every spring. We'd, the calves would have to be run through and we'd cut their horns off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, did I, I mind told you this, one old, <clears throat> we ran down by Lake Powell Iron. In the spring, it was quite a, Roundup. Everybody'd be down there rounding up the cattle, so we'd have large herds. And we had a large corral there, what we call the posts. Uh, don't know. If the posts is where the bird trail comes off out of Boulder. Have you ever been down the bird mm -hmm. trail? Yeah. Okay. That 
Then you went down the gulch there. Well, that was where the road comes off right there, about, oh, maybe a mile down the road where the road forks and goes one way around the reef or down the gulch. We had a camp there called the Post. And then the quail was down, and uh, we had uh, the only water you had down there is what would be in tanks, so what was the name? Mule, not Mule tanks. Uh, what was the tank? <laughs> it's awful. Anyway, there was a big tank across the canyon there from the trail that uh, always had water in, and we could take the cattle over there and water them or horses. Yeah, and so this time... Uh, the Ernest Peterson was an old cowpuncher with us, and he, that old crowl, and right there was a big crowl, and he stored across the crowl, and an old cow took after him. <laughs> 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 and he stumbled and fell halfway across the crowl, and he, <laughs> them old silken boots they had, they had a steel cap on the heel. And he raised his foot, just that old cow went to get him and kicked her in the head, and she just dropped dead right right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. We used to have some real stories to tell. <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> so the biggest problem that you faced were the boundaries. The boundaries? That, yeah, is that what you said, right? The boundaries, yes. We, uh, they had allotments, and so you had to uh, stay within that allotment. And our allotment started the Bitter Creek Divide and went. We took all the country from the Bitter Creek Divide and then from Trikite, where the Trikite on the other side of the mountain goes down Everything south of Trackite and the Bitter Creek Divide was our territory that we could run in. Could you run on the mountain at all, or do you have no, to go? No. You had to go around. We couldn't run on the mountain. We had to stay in the desert. The mountain was a different allotment altogether. Although it was BLM ground, not forest like most of it, it was still BLM. But huh. uh, the Hanksville people pretty well had the mountain tied up yeah <laughs> yeah what would you say the biggest challenges that you face ranching today i guess the other challenges is all the i guess the restrictions of you know the government agencies of what we're required to do and uh you know what we gain from that is usually not financially beneficial, I guess. Um, so those are probably our biggest challenges um, with just the change of what it, what it takes to be, I guess, for it to be, for, to pay for itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we're only required with the amount of cows we run and the permits we have. If if the 
conditions are right, you know, we would only have them home for approximately three weeks. But uh, a lot of times where they're telling us or the conditions are such that we can't stay on the winter range or delayed on dates or so then trying the, you know, the feed costs and the whatever it takes for those gaps. It's just um, the tough, the tough things. Yeah. And the other uh, thing for us is that generation, that's what they did. I mean, that's what they did for a living. That, that was their life. Yeah. And now for us, um, and trying to find uh, help or somebody to hire to do those things because we can't be there is just yeah. almost impossible to find people to. So I think those are the, our biggest challenges. Yeah. I I don't want to get into this too much, but I also talked to somebody who said that they felt like they were regulated by specific dates instead of by the actual conditions on the land versus like when to go on, when to come off, things like that. Um, so I'm curious if that's something that you guys notice too, is that they're more strict on dates than the actual conditions. For sure. Yeah. I mean, what waits you, like when he says in the past with the sp spring light rights that we still ha have a lot of that we don't use because of development or roads or no fencing or, but those types of things. And like on a year like this, where they hold us off for two weeks because of the drought conditions, um, those are tough things if you, you know, aren't prepared. And if you have 300 head of cows to feed for those extra two weeks yeah. is a, is a big thing. So, but we have seen the last, um, I don't know if it's just because of the, the management, like, especially with our BLM, um, that's managed out of the Hanksville office is they have given us, I guess, a lot more, uh, leniency and uh, not just mandating or picking a date or a percentage or a, the last few years they've just, uh, you know, they send us a full billing, but say if you guys as an association or permittees want, you, you tell us what you're expecting to do or what you feel. So that, that has been good for us yeah. because and it's, I think that's better because with the people like we winter with, we summer alone, we have a private allotment now, but when there's several people involved, if you know you're doing it because to save those days in the spring, if you delay your on dates or you come out two weeks early and everybody is on board because you know you're protecting, you know, what you have. It's a different um, mindset than being mandated yeah. by the government agency to do it. So those are the things we've seen recently, kind of a change. Our biggest problem until it took care of was wild horses. The bakers, had, that's where we got most of our rights for down below from the baker's ranch. And the bakers had 
run horses there on the on that area, <clears throat> but they didn't uh, might say uh, manage them. They just let them go, and they yeah. they got to be such a problem. They were taking two thirds of the feed, you know, staying there all year round, never not giving the and then a horse can trail for miles to water, so they would they would just taking the vegetation, and then when we finally bought the permits and from the bakers, then that gave us the right to get rid of the horses. So we, the, at that time, the government had what they called a a uh, system for doing away with predators, and so the they had a trapper called a government trapper and so he came in the area and and uh, would we'd shoot one of those horses and then he would poison the carcass and then anything that ate on that that old 1080 would kill him from a bird uh, whatever and so that went on for a year or so we got rid of the horses and everything else down there. Nice. <laughs> Win-win. Because that 1080 just killed everything. It was mean tough. <laughs> yeah. On the flip side of that, though, like, what would you say the best part of well, living this lifestyle is? It, uh, the flip side of that was now we could control the grazing on our allotments and um, instead of just having the, that big horse herd take everything, we could control it and put so many cattle here or so many cattle there and there was more feed. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to look at those wild horses and those old stallions that have the, these little uh, roundup of mares and think, boy, what a beautiful horse. And then when they'd shoot them and you'd get up as the ugliest darn old horse you'd ever see. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> In general, um, though, what would you what would you say the best part about being involved in the cattle industry has been? Well, it's given us a pretty good livelihood through the years, and I guess that's the main part that we've been able to, uh, with our women working, <laughs> we're able to survive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Would you agree with that? Would that be your flip side, too? Yeah, and I think for, for me, or me and my wife now, and our family is just um, the part of the, the heritage you know the generations that went before that um, just trying to to keep it going is just um, like one of my friends that that ranches full time said. You know uh, the only reason we do this is for our kids. At this point, is just to try to. Um, so I think that's a big part of it for me is just um, knowing that you know we work hard at a few things to, to do it, but it's worth it just for the, you know, the, the heritage part of it to keep it going. Yeah. So. 
That is cool. You guys do have a pretty cool heritage going on with this place. (laughs) (laughs) Was it important to you to raise your kids in that lifestyle too? Who? Was it important for you to raise your kids kind of the same way you were raised? Too? Well, I thought it was. I I enjoyed it, so I thought they should enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think they did. Of course, I, Jeff's the only one that stayed there. Uh, the others, they left. My oldest son, he teaches at the White Brigham Young University, and the next son's a lawyer, and but they still like to get down here and get out with us, but they don't depend on it for their livelihood like we do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So as I think it's been a good way of life to raise a family and let them have a little freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm uh, fourth generation. So my son that's now has some permit with us and running one of my cousin's stuff is his fifth generation Williams on the same permits and ground here in Teasdale and Fish Creek. So That's way cool. So that's pretty special. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you said you like Herefords. You like Angus. So where does that balance out at? Did you kind of start introducing Angus into your herd or? No, you'll have to, I'm kind of hard to <laughs> Sorry, hear. I'm kind of self-spoken too. So you like the Herefords and Jeff likes the Angus. So when did you start introducing Angus into the when, mix? When he kind of, the boys kind of took over, they <laughs> out pardon me and... Now it's all Angus. <laughs> no more Herefords? No more Herefords, no. All Angus now. Of course, Angus now is the inbreed, you know. Everyone yeah. thinks the Angus is the ultimate cow. All but me. <laughs> all but you. <laughs> we, still, we, still, uh, we still run two to three Hereford bulls. Okay. With our... Uh, so in 1999 is when myself and my siblings purchased most of the ranch and permits from my mom and dad. So that's when we, uh, I guess, I don't know that you would call it a trend, but, you know, to meet the markets and whatever. Yeah. To, uh, so we mostly run uh, balancers or Simangus bulls now. Okay. Um, but we always do keep a few Herefords around because that is a good influence for where we run. Yeah. Um, so they're not all straight black. A lot of them have white faces. <laughs> nice. When you were growing up, when you were doing it, who were some of the people that you looked up to as a role model in the industry? Well, like I say, my father had a stroke, so he was pretty much out of it, so... My role models, I guess, were my older brothers that would take me out and with them all the time. And so they were more or less the ones I looked up to as my older brothers. Oral and Dial were the oldest. And, and they were, <clears throat> well, 
Orville, my oldest brother, was born in 10, and I was born in 28, so there's quite a difference there in their ages, so I looked up to him. And, That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked up to him when he'd take me fishing. <laughs> he, he'd take me fishing. <laughs> and I was... Used to fishing in the little streams around here, you know, and you catch them fish about that long, and you throw them out. <laughs> and uh, so he took me up to, well, this is my father that took me to Fish Creek Lake. You ever been to Fish Creek Lake? Uh-uh. It's a beautiful lake up on the, down towards Grover there and up on the mountain high. And they always had an old bamboo pole hid in a tree up there with a fishing line on it. They just left there, you know. And then we'd go down the creek and get what we called a rock roller. You'd turn the rocks over and these little old uh, rock rollers would be encrusted in um, gravel casing. And you'd break that casing open and there'd be a bug in there. Mm. And so you'd take that rock roller and put on your hook and cast it out and fish like those rock rollers. And I remember I got a bite. We called it a bite, and the line started to go, and man, I went like that, like the, in the creek. I could flip them right out, and that fish was so big, it just shattered that old bamboo pole, but the bamboo held together. <laughs> And so I run up the bank and pulled it out, and boy, he was a nice fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that concludes part one of my interview with Dwight Williams. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating and a review. Also, stay tuned for part two coming out in two weeks. <laughs>